0: Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, a podcast where we talk about books that are about archaeology but anyone can enjoy. I'm your host, Tristan Herenstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Hey everybody! And so last time we finished up the book In Small Things Forgotten by James Dietz, which was a nice, cozy book. And I'm glad to say that our next book, Stealing History, is also just very nice and cozy and happy. It's a happy book, right?
1: Um, You have a different definition of happy than I do, Tristan.
0: <laughs> and So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we do, a little bit of housekeeping. If you are listening to this as a podcast, please give us a review and a five-star rating. If you are watching this on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and comment. That means a lot to us, and it tells our bosses that this is worth our time, so it helps us keep this going. We really appreciate that kind of thing. Also, before we move into the book, we do have a, just a couple potential trigger warnings for folks. It isn't graphic, and you kind of know us if you've been listening to us for a while. We don't dive into that stuff very deep, but there is some conversation of some fairly intense violence, I would say, as well as quite a bit of human remains. If you're watching the video version of this on Spotify or YouTube, I will be excluding human remains from that. Also, I wanna make a point that as you've probably heard us talk about, we really feel strongly about the idea of artifacts as having monetary value. And so we will not be discussing that in detail here. And also by and large, I will not be including images of all the gold and stuff talked about. There will be a couple exceptions I expect. Um, But just so you kind of know what to expect from this series, uh, because there is quite a lot of discussion of precious materials, essentially. And that, of course, is not what archaeology is about.
1: The illicit market will give them value, but to us, they are priceless. The value is what information they can provide us about the past. It's not monetary. And we feel... Really strongly about that.
0: We do, And which I'll give the, this book credit. I think it does a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, no, it does a great job of explaining why.
0: Yeah, and um, we'll see this, but I noticed too that when the book talks about the value of the archaeology, it's often using the author's voice. When it talks about the excuses for looting, he is entirely quoting other people, essentially, yeah. which I appreciated, even though I gets my hackles up a little bit every time. Like, no, no, he's not. He's not saying these things. Give it a break, you know, but so I'd say the author seems like he's doing a pretty good job overall. Definitely. So we start off with the introduction titled Looters in the Temple. And this doesn't go into the Peruvian antiquities market to start with. We start with the Iraq War and kind of a description of what happened after the war to both the museums and to the archaeological sites that were there. Uh, There was a report at one time of the National Museum in Iraq having 13,000 artifacts stolen. Oh, wait, 170,000 artifacts stolen, which was actually 13,000. Somehow that is less horrific. I I guess it is, but 13,000 is still a lot.
1: That's a lot of artifacts to be taken out of a museum.
0: Most of them were not recovered, he said. There were a few that were just too recognizable to be sold and they were dumped somewhere, but most of them have not been found. I actually, if you keep an eye on the news, just, and if you check the show notes, I'll put it in there if I can remember to do it. Just last week or last, just last month, there was actually a report of some of the artifacts from this museum being finally recovered. And it was like, it was a pittance to 13,000. It was basically nothing, but still we are seeing the after effects of this. Go ahead.
1: Well, and I was going to say it wasn't just the museums. Although that's astonishing to me that looters were just essentially able to walk into the museum because of the damage done during the conflict and take things, but also archaeological sites were being looted at a alarming rate, and the problem with that is these sites have not been excavated or have only been partially excavated, so they're taking things that archaeologists aren't aware of as far as their existence. So these are things that are taken out of context, which I know we've talked a little bit about, and I know we'll talk a lot more about in this episode, but they're taken out of context before we even have an opportunity to study them. Right. The fact that this was, what's interesting about this to me is how organized the looters are. Uh, Apparently during, people knew that Saddam Hussein was going to fall and people were contacting Looters and dealers. Before that happened, essentially making orders for what they wanted. When that happened, because they knew that it was going to be ripe right for the picking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just the organization that was astonishing to me and alarming and upsetting.
0: Yeah, and to tie into your point about things being out of context, I just said that there were a number of artifacts that were finally recovered recently, and we're kind of like, whoop, you know, that's the damage is done. The the, the history and the story of that that they could add to that culture is lost forever Yep. and there's some excellent quotes in the book about an archaeologist's perspective on that kind of thing that we'll get to
1: well and you have to keep in mind what type of sites these are as well not that there are sites that are more important or less important than others they all are important in their own way but these are sites in essentially the cradle of civilization the sumerian sites mesopotamian sites you know this is the first written word cuneiform and things like that that we all learn about in elementary school like this is some of the stuff that we consider to be the beginnings of modern humanity in some ways and so it's just a shame it really is this was kind of a heartbreaking thing to read about
0: the whole book yeah so far at least has been kind of difficult Mm -hmm. in in that sense in that it's not happy Yeah. So kind of to take us through what happened here, the country was apparently a very important hub for archaeological research up until 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And without tourists and archaeologists working on sites, they became easy targets for looters. After the war, the U.S. didn't make much effort to protect the sites. And so the author actually was a journalist after the war. And He was going around and has a pretty intense description of his experiences because some of these sites were held by, uh, you know, hundreds of men with assault rifles and they're looting it and they would chase or threaten off anyone who got too close. He did talk about how there was one site that was being protected that he went and interviewed folks, but... You know, it was still a question of like, well, when we leave, what's going to happen? You know, we're, we're stopping things now. But it, they were having to fight them off constantly, apparently.
1: And I will say you can criticize the U.S. for not adequately protecting these sites. But also you have to keep in mind that there were other priorities. Of course. Um, I guess it was noted and it was recognized. And
0: yeah, and I, I don't say that as in there is necessarily criticism to be made there. There were, very well could be. But I'm not in a position to make that criticism. Yeah,
1: I don't know. But I mean, what struck me, though, is just the I can't imagine being an archaeologist and seeing sites like they talk about. I think her name was Susan, who worked at one of these sites Mm -hmm. and the description of her just sorrow seeing the site she had worked on for years be looted. I know it might not seem like much to some people, but, you know, this is her life's work. So you can imagine if somebody came into your office or what have you, whatever your career field may be, and took that from
0: you. And I think it's more than just her life's work, too, because, yeah, her life's work was on this site, but she knows that there's more than her life's work worth of work in this site, yeah. too. There will be... Will be learning from this site from generations yeah. in theory, and then it's now it's gone forever. Yeah,
1: and I also I know we've touched on it before about how archaeology has been used for nefarious purposes in the past, and I didn't realize about Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. and how he used archaeology to push his own political agenda. That was pretty interesting to me. So during his reign, archaeologists essentially had it made. Uh, They could. Local archaeologists. Yeah, local archaeologists had it made. They could get funding for whatever sites they wanted to excavate. Museums were getting funded very um, well. And this was essentially to reinforce his role in Iraq. And he believed he was heir to the glories of Mesopotamia. And he went so far as to inscribe a brick with his name at the reconstructed ruins of Babylon, which is what a ancient ruling successor would do. And he had billboards that evoked biblical imagery with him included. Right. He essentially put, you know, history to his service and to push his agenda and to legitimize his agenda. We've seen that before. And yeah, we've and we're still a seeing bit it, it today, I would say. You could yeah. find
0: examples of it today. This kind of was a bit of a revelation to me as to why the looting was so intense and out of control too, especially for like the museum and those national places because, you know, people didn't like him and he set himself up as being a part of these places. Yeah. And so looting them, I I could see, would be a part of striking back. Yeah, it's part of that it's revenge. it's an act of
1: rebellion right. in a very damaging form.
0: Yeah, and so I... That's a a theme throughout is that I don't like what they're doing, but I can often find myself sympathizing with the people on the ground with these things um, because their situations are intense for various reasons, I guess. And we'll get to that with Peru. It was different, but it was also, they had their reasons for doing what they do.
1: I do like the way that this author brings that into the picture because as an archaeologist, it's really easy to get tunnel vision and think just of the site and think just of the past but Which
0: I think we'll get to as well yeah but there is yeah.
1: there are impacts to people and communities that exist today that are important and right. we need to take them into consideration and the author goes into a little bit about the resolutions and other laws that were passed to try and stop the illicit trade of artifacts and then he goes into a little bit about how, And this surprised me that, I guess it doesn't surprise me, but how Europe and the U.S. were kind of hot spots for where these artifacts ended up. Like you could go to art museums and art galleries and see them there. And it was just shocking to me to think that you could walk into an art gallery that seems legitimate and a number of the artifacts or art pieces in there would be from essentially what people call the black market.
0: There's a bunch of nicely worded quotes, but I got a couple here I want to read that come directly from the mm-hmm. book. Talking about the looting, all we are left with are random objects that may be beautiful or valuable, but which tell us very little about people who made them. Looting obliterates the memory of the ancient world and it turns its highest artistic creations into decorations, adornments on a shelf, divorced from historical context, and ultimately from all meaning. Now that summed it up quite well. And then even shorter version of that from another archaeologist is, as one archaeologist has said, looted objects are pretty but dumb.
1: I, I Yeah, I, I was going to talk about that later or earlier when we were discussing it. But the fact that he called them dumb, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And then whole cultures are swallowed up by this business. Yeah. And we'll see that in Peru for sure.
1: And it's, as we are well aware, we live in a global society and all this technology and Things like direct flights—they've made it easier for—is what well, you know—they've made it easier for us to feel secure. But they've also that same technology has made it easier for people to smuggle objects into other countries. And Various things, things yeah. I assume, not
0: just artifacts yeah. here. But yeah. oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> but the globalization of our world and our economy has just kind of made this worse. And it amazed me throughout the book of what we read so far, anyways how fast these items can be put on the market and taken to another country. It was yeah. mind-blowing.
0: Yeah. And so he kind of concludes this introduction by observing that most places that are hot spots for the antiquities black market have kind of an event that sets all that off. And in Peru, it was in February 6th, 1987, which is where we're going to kind of start with Uh, But just a quick summary is there's a burial mound called Huaca uh, in a village called Sipan. And so these are both important terms we'll be talking about for the rest of the podcast, probably, so uh, that's worth to keep in mind. The burial mound was a part of what's called the Mochi culture. This uh, was a pre-Columbian culture, quite old, and it started around 100 CE. And when... This mound was hit, they found gold, silver, and jewels, and word got out fast.
1: And it was literally a gold rush. <laughs>
0: it was nationwide. Yeah. Probably region wide, really. Yeah. Like you're probably looking at uh, neighboring countries being hit by this as well. But a gold rush is a good analogy for it.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately.
0: Unfortunately, because everyone's out trying to get a piece of it then and no idea. A lot of them were just like the American gold rush. If you have that for any context, it's just like people who don't have any idea of how to do mining or anything going out and taking their chances and digging where they, wherever they, you know, they don't have any real context for where might even be. So they're actually digging up stuff that uh, experienced looter would know that's not worth our time.
1: Yeah, and this did result in some of some really tough U.S. codes, from what I understand, some of the toughest that had ever been seen since then as far as antiquity smuggling goes, set off U.S. customs raids, FBI undercover investigations, and apparently numerous court cases as well. And it also brought to light, and this is where other people, not just archaeologists come in, how the black market the illicit market whatever you want to call it how it exploits the poor and marginalized people and that's why this author chose to focus on peru is because it's a story that kind of encapsulates all of that specifically this site but other sites as well Mm -hmm. so as you're reading it when you start off in iraq you're like okay and then all of a sudden you're like wait why are we talking about peru he explains that in the book but just so our listeners know.
0: Yeah, Pru is just a good case study, essentially. Yeah, it's but not it's something that happens entirely. everywhere. But right.
1: this is just kind of, it gives you a good idea of what's going on in a nice, tidy package, I guess. As tidy as yes. the illicit black market. And can so be.
0: for this podcast, we will talk about the finding of the site, um, some of the collectors or people who like early stages of the antiquities market. And the archaeologists, and then I think we'll get into the rest of that in the rest of the book. I'm thinking, but we'll kind of see how that goes. All right, so moving on to chapter one, titled Looking for a Tomb. And it starts off with a narrative that kind of confused me at the time. I wasn't quite sure what the point was or how to record it. I think what he's doing is describing kind of a pre looting gold rush, like almost ritualized looting that was uh, almost a cultural thing in itself.
1: That's what I gathered from it. You know, I had read the, read this book previously or part of this book previously and I had to start over for the podcast, but that's kind of the feeling I got. Mm-hmm. He does a really good job though of introducing terminology like huqueros and pacas and stuff that I'm glad he does. Huqueros <laughs> is just a Peruvian word for a professional grave robber essentially. A lot of characters are introduced, like Robin is one character that he talks about, but they never talked about him again. So So far, anyway. Yeah, yeah, so far, I should, yeah, that's true. But Robin here had a knack for finding ancient textiles in graves, um, and he knew which ones are good quality and which ones would fetch a lot of money. I know we don't want to talk too much about the money, but... Some of his textiles, first of all, finding a textile in an archaeological site is phenomenal to me. I know in Florida we've had like one or two instances of that, but to find like a complete textile, wow, it's rare. And I know Peru's a different environment there, but the amount of money, he mentions that some could fetch as much as a Renoir or a Matisse painting, and I looked up online On an art galleries page to see how much a matisse would go for and it's over 280 million yeah like i'm sure there's a wide range in art but
0: and this is his words yeah yeah the the looters words yeah so i had a couple moments of that like
1: right when i saw that i was like there has to be no way i mean i know people will pay a lot for artifacts unfortunately but I cannot imagine. Yeah. And this was a Matisse that sold recently. So and you know this book was written a while ago now, but I just cannot fathom somebody that would do that. I don't know.
0: Yeah. And so what's going on in the book at this point? It took me a little bit to get oriented. The author is actually going along with some looters in a more modern setting. I'm not sure exactly when this is, but this is probably you know the last 10 to 20 years i'm guessing yeah and he is actually accompanying them as a journalist essentially
1: yeah which is with not without risk and there's a couple times where you can sense the risk Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not only just the risk from like the safety of it but also the risk from other looters and from police he's essentially going along for a ride with criminals and they could get arrested and such. And he would get arrested
0: along with them. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you kind of get a sense with like the very beginning because the place they meet, and I think it was Robin, says to him, oh, you got here without getting mugged. Great.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So (laughs) it's kind of a place famous for that kind of thing. And so that just kind of sets the tone a little bit for the risk they're dealing with.
1: Yeah, I guess the village Robin lives in is essentially the primary economy is looting or robbing people. So not a great environment.
0: Yeah. So the author says to understand the grave robbing, you need to be willing to witness it, which is what he is doing. Um, he kind of describes their journey. Uh, they take a bus to another town, meet basically the team as it goes on. I don't know if anything popped out to you as something particularly worth bringing up in this. There's a, It's a very... Well done narrative, I yeah, will Yeah, and he
1: goes in to talk a little bit about pre-Columbian cultures in that region, which is always interesting and important for a little bit of context and how old these things are and how important they were to the culture at that time. I mean, some yeah. of these sites were essentially shrines and sites of pilgrimage. So they were important. So if you think of what would be excavated properly at that site, you could gain a lot of information.
0: Some of them were important pilgrimage sites, like almost to present, Yeah, which you can think of Anchor Wat when we talked mm-hmm. about that and how important that was, still is.
1: And he also talks about how, you know, the Joaqueros are not necessarily the first ones to loot these sites. The Spanish conquistadors did as well right. because they were looking for gold, so. So, these sites have a long history, unfortunately, of being subjected to looting. I did find it interesting, too, how throughout the book so far, these looters, it's almost like they give the sites a personality or something. They talk about how some huacas are bad because they don't give you anything.
0: The huaca was used sometimes as the site, but also sometimes as. Like a, a force, almost. Yeah,
1: like a spiritual essence right. of it in and of itself, which is interesting. And to me, it's like, it's fascinating. It's also a little bit horrifying because if something is so spiritual to you, how can you go and loot it? But then again, that shows a little bit that he gets into later about the economic situation of the area, but also the mythology that gets created around the looting.
0: And it sounds like this was maybe even derived from the kind of ritualized looting we mentioned before. Yeah. I don't remember where he talked about that exactly, but essentially they had a spiritual leader who would do a prayer. Family, this was once a year thing, I think, and the yeah. families would do a little digging and anything they found, like it sounded like half the time it would just end up as keepsakes. Yeah. It wasn't even, even necessarily being sold. It was almost a religious practice in a way. Yeah. And so very interesting. Still not, we know we're not wild about that kind of thing, but it pales compared to what's going on with the commercial looters, essentially. Yeah. So we meet one of the looters who had been arrested recently, and like the police brought a TV crew and everything. It was a big deal, and they were in prison for a while until their collector, their contact that sold the stuff they found, actually paid to get them out. We don't know exactly what went on in that, but it was suggested that it was bribes were yeah. passed down at some point. And it is interesting that like. The guy's uncle wouldn't see the journalist at all. Yeah, like, wouldn't he, even
1: come out of his bedroom. He
0: wouldn't come out of the chicken shed. Yeah. That's oh, that's right. He was. he was in
1: the chicken shed.
0: Yeah, he would. He was in there. He's like, he's, he wouldn't come out. Yeah. They uh, all get together. I think there's four of them, four looters with yep. him. This and part. they walk to the Huaca. They, they're trying to target. There's a little talk about, you know, how risky this is. Uh, We talk about arrest, but also like cave-ins are a big problem. There's a reason we don't, in archaeology, we don't dig above our heads typically, at least in the U.S.
1: Yeah. And he talks even about like the farmer's dogs. Like they have guard dogs for protection. And, you know, sometimes you have to walk out through farmer's fields. And you risk getting attacked by dogs.
0: Right. Or I imagine shot by the farmers. Shot by such the too. farmers. Yeah. yeah.
1: So there's you- a lot of risk from pretty much every direction imaginable in this kind of work.
0: So they get to the site and they start prospecting. And it was killing me, Barbara. Can you remember the name of, because we use these poles sometimes in archaeology too. essentially a pointed steel rod with a handle and you just, you shove them in the ground you look for different consistencies of things. There's a term for it. I cannot remember. Neither can Barbara.
1: <laughs> I can't. I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: I don't remember what we used to call it. It's been a while, but for some reason it's not coming to me. But we do use similar things, although I will note we use it in different ways than we are used here. Yeah,
1: a lot of times it's just... As- get a little soil to like figure out what type of soil you're looking for or if there's a foundation of a building right. where it goes to we try not to use them
0: Brick foundations are a big one if there was a barrel we would never use
1: Yeah it. right exactly that's what I was going to say
0: Maybe like a headstone that's missing could be Yeah you know that kind of but thing But you don't go right.
1: deep enough to Right you especially don't... I mean here we know approximately most of the time generally how deep burials are and we can be cognizant of that here that may not be the case and honestly these folks don't really care that's not the purpose yeah
0: yeah so he talks about some of the techniques used with these um essentially if they push through and they hit empty space they've broken through a pot which already makes me sad and bones make a distinct sound
1: i know i just just reading that like i made me tense up yeah just i cannot it's heartbreaking
0: and so as they're going, they make notes on grave locations, and he notes that they can dig a six-foot hole in 15 minutes.
1: Which, can we just think about that? You and I have dug a lot of holes in our lifetime, and this is a prime difference between how archaeologists go about their business versus these looters. First of all, we would never dig a hole that deep without proper like OSHA-compliant safety right. protocols. But it would take us, golly, I can't even imagine. I mean, granted, we don't know how wide this hole is It depends on the soils and how much we're
0: finding, but, you know. We
1: dig centimeters at a time.
0: Yeah, I would probably be able to do that in like a day and a half of careful digging.
1: Yeah. And like another thing that blew my mind, you talked about the ceramics. They were just tossing them to the side Mm -hmm. because the market had been inundated with so many ceramics that they were useless. useless. They didn't have value to them. And so they pull these objects out of context and then just toss them to the side. So it's like a double whammy.
0: Right. And that just highlights another of the big problems. It's not just the things that are taken. It's all the other things that are disturbed on the way that aren't marketable. Yeah. You know, archaeology, we are studying every little chip of stone. We're studying pollen and charred seeds. These are things that these guys don't have any interest in. Well,
1: even just the stratigraphy of the soil, like... That is essentially ruined in this, yeah. the way they're digging and stuff. There's no way you can get at that without having to excavate again, essentially.
0: And a good analogy for why the context matters so much is if you can think of it kind of like investigating a crime scene where you have, you know, your artifacts, where they are matters in relation to each other just as much as like evidence in a crime scene. Because yeah. it's with the same idea, too, is you're looking at something that happened and trying to figure out what was going on. We're just working in different ways, but it's a similar basic idea. And so all those stuff being moved is evidence being disturbed and information being lost forever.
1: Well, and not even that. These are burials. Yeah. These are people's final resting places. And he talks about how you can see skeletal remains that have been bleached by the sun just tossed aside. And some of them were children. Yeah. Just it's heartbreaking on so many levels. (laughs) It really is. It
0: kind of is difficult. So they did find a tomb that had already been looted, and they're not sure when. Uh, One of the looters, though, said maybe Spaniards in the colonial era, which I just kind of noted, like, that sounds like an excuse.
1: There were a lot of things that sound like an excuse And yeah, throughout not, this book.
0: Spaniards wouldn't have been looking for the same things, right? Right? They're yeah. looking for the gold. These guys are looking for textiles. That's yeah. not what Spaniards wanted. Again, I'm seeing hints of unreliable na- narrator, and the author doesn't always call them on it, but that that's okay. He kind of leaves that to us, I think, right. sometimes. I think kind that's of the purpose, and yeah. I think,
1: honestly, he's a journalist, and that's Kind of good journalism in some ways. Yeah.
0: (laughs) He does note one of the looters readily acknowledges what they do, but some of the others kind of feel a little, seem to feel a little bad about it in some way. Or
1: or it's like at first they felt bad about it, but then kind of became indifferent to it. It just
0: became normal. Yeah. You know, if they stop and think about it, probably still not really wild about it. Yeah. um, One of them seemed to actually embrace it. And so eventually they do find a fresh grave as in not having been looted before and find a tunic that had belonged to a young a boy or a young man and so they loot this person's grave and take the coat that was left with him now they have to sell it quickly because it's risky to hold on to it for arrest reasons but also apparently buyers are less likely to buy something if they think others have turned it down they have to sell it quickly yeah and then they get in touch with their buyer and essentially part of this whole system is they have to convince him that what they have is so good that he will choose them over other people and come and buy theirs and at this point the author had to leave because they didn't want to make the
1: the seller uncomfortable right yeah because i guess they have certain Mm -hmm. sellers that they are kind of their go-to sellers that they know will buy things or They know what specific sellers are looking for and they don't want to scare them off because then they have to find somebody else who's looking for that specific thing. And this has to be done really quickly. So once you have somebody in hand, you want to do everything you can to keep them in your pocket, essentially. Right. And so they didn't want the author to be there. And it was I mean, honestly, it was probably better for the author not to be there as well from a legal standpoint. I don't know. But I thought about that. I was like, hmm. If you're a witness to this sale and it's, you know, in violation of law, how does, I mean, he's already broken so many laws, but I was like, how does that impact what could happen to you within the legal system of your court?
0: Right, especially a legal system that, as it sounds like, sometimes you can just be put in jail without a trial. Yeah. Which has uh, reportedly happened to a couple of these guys Yeah, at different points. So now we move into some more generic history of looting and how it developed. And so he says that, you know, about 50 years ago, the collection was very Eurocentric. So people were collecting ancient Greek things and things more around Europe. But since then, the scale has just gotten blown up and gotten huge. So mm-hmm. there's a, a couple of scholars in Belize that estimate there are 200 looters for every archaeologist in their country. It gives you kind of an idea. Not that there's that many archaeologists, but the archaeology doesn't have a chance. Yeah. Part of the problem is now compared to past looting, too, even the Spaniards and such, is they're using modern equipment for it. We've seen that here in the U.S. of people going out with backhoes, yeah. um, using underwater scooters to blast out riverbeds. And there's even some cases where I guess people are using chainsaws to cut stone faces off and sell the stone. Yeah. And, you
1: know, he talks a little bit about how in Cambodia they would hack off various limbs of sculptures. And back in 2017, I went to Thailand and I visited a lot of these temples and I saw a lot of them without heads. And I had asked our tour guide, they said that they actually started removing certain parts of these statues on purpose to protect them because it makes the site less likely to be looted it becomes less valuable to the looters so even in 2017 they were worrying about these things they were literally chopping the heads off right. and putting them in storage where it was a more secure area and it just blew my mind and then to read this again I was like oh my so. Yeah. So in
0: 1991, Cambodia ended a, a long civil war con type conflict, and the antiquities market just kind of blew up at that point. Apparently, during the conflict, both sides kind of avoided these ancient places. Yeah. If we read, go back to um, four lost cities, it seemed like there was maybe not as cut and dry as that. Some of the places, maybe like Angkor Wat, was probably safe, but the author talked about how there was a kind of a mining site, quarry site, that's what it was, that they were holed up in for a while, that kind of thing. So yeah. it wasn't as cut and dry, but maybe the, the most critical ones were. But now this author has said that Anchor Watt has lost nearly every head.
1: I did find it, you know, having experienced what I experienced in Thailand, and then they talk about how a lot of these heads end up in art galleries in Thailand. I was like, ugh. You know, like (laughs) they're trying to protect their own, but then they also have art galleries in their same country that are selling essentially very similar objects from other countries.
0: This kind of blew my mind. I guess it's so frantic, the whole thing, that they've done concrete replacements of some of the ones that are lost, and even the concrete replacements are getting stolen. Yeah. I just kind of really brought home how frenetic the whole thing is. It's not, I don't know if they think That they're real or if they think that those will actually sell too somehow. I am not clear on the logic there.
1: I I can see how they might essentially there could be a market for them if the heads are so sought after. Even the fakes would be eventually sought after. I don't know. It's heartbreaking. And I know he talks to a dealer in China and he mentions that direct flights have made things so much easier for them. Because now it lessens their chance of getting caught, because um, they don't have to go through so many customs stops and things. But it also keeps the things from breaking because they don't have to be transported on and off different planes. It just—he also admits that he's possibly selling stuff that's looted. This boiled my blood, <laughs> where he says that the new owner will cherish it more than an underfunded museum in an under or uh, underdeveloped country. And that kind of theme, it, you see that from several different people that he interviews throughout.
0: And I've seen that in the U.S. Yep, too. It's the yeah. same old excuses every time. The same It'll just
1: end up on a shelf. Disguising
0: in... selfishness as yeah, as something grand.
1: And the thing about that is, I mean, how many times have we had objects brought to us saying, I was cleaning out my grandma's attic right," and I found this object. I don't know what to do with it.
0: Yeah, and again remember too, it's not just this one thing, it's everything else that was destroyed or disturbed in the process of yeah. getting this thing too.
1: So you think you're saving it.
0: Oh, uh, they don't. They don't. They you're know right. Exactly yeah, what I know it's an doing.
1: excuse, but the the excuse doesn't hold water.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I have I had strong words in my notes for some of these Oh, quotes. yes, me too. <laughs> Here's another one. I don't care what the provenience of an object is. It's like a baby The piece is out there. Someone has got to take care of it. And it's much better with someone who loves it than an archaeologist who sees it as just the subject of his dissertation, he said. This is the difference between the archaeologists and us. To them, it is simply a document. To me, it is a work of art. It moves me. And look at just the phrasing. Me, 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 me. That really tells you everything you should need to know there, right?
1: Well, and if you continue to have that mindset it continues the essentially illegal economy, right? If you say, no, we're not going to take care of these, we don't want these, then the market fails. Right. So it's, it's just this cycle of selfishness that keeps perpetuating itself.
0: And it's the, the idea, too, that they're somehow saving history. Yeah. It was fine. Yeah. It had been there for hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years. It was fine.
1: Until you came along and destroyed it. Yes. Yeah.
0: It was going to be fine. So it's the same garbage, really. And it's
1: it comes, I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact, though, that it does stem partially from that whole ivory tower mentality that some archaeologists may have had or may have. But it's not an excuse. It's still not a valid excuse. Even if you see it just as the subject of someone's dissertation, it's so much more than that. And you're failing to recognize that.
0: Intentionally, too. Yes. Like there's no they they have a vested interest in not recognizing it because yeah. if they recognize it, then they have to confront that they need to stop. And,
1: you know, it, when he says, like, you know, t- it moves me. It's a piece of art. Bunny, you're making money off this. If it yeah. if it really moved you that much and if it really meant that much to you, you would also see it as priceless and not be able to put a monetary value on it. But yep. you do and you sell it as soon as somebody comes along with the right amount of money. And then all of a sudden it's their priceless item or their, you know, artistic priced item. item. Priced item. Right. Yeah. It's very besides annoying. Well, he,
0: he's <laughs> just straight up lying and he knows yeah. it. And he knows that everyone who buys from him knows it, I think. Yeah. And it's just the accepted well, myth that like, they tell each other.
1: Just like the looters who... Yeah, you know, we know this is burials. It's very sad, but they continue to do it. They continue to desecrate burials. This is that just at the next level.
0: And this is a level that enables the looters yep. themselves. Yep. And the, and the the buyers from them, too. And this occurred to me here, and he, the author brings this up as well, that this is kind of an extension of colonialism, right? Who yeah. is this going to? It's a lot of Europe and American... Um, Rich people buying other people's culture.
1: And he gets into it a little more um, later on. Mm -hmm. But the looters, they're not necessarily doing this because they want to. A lot of times it's because lack of other viable options.
0: Right. And actually, that brings us to the end of the chapter. They're back at a cafe or something having breakfast, all of them together. Kind of, you know, they're all pumped up because they had a good find or something. And he asked them if what they do makes them uncomfortable. And he said he felt they were clearly didn't want to be thinking about this. Yeah. Um and he so he but he persists and kinda of says, How would how would you feel if someone came along and dug up your burial or your father's burial? And they were, you know, clearly uncomfortable with this. And then finally they just told him there's no other work. Yeah. Which I, I think I believe them yeah, in this context, and, at least.
1: Yeah, when you read that part and you read the context of it, yeah. I mean, this is kind of their only option to be able to support and sustain themselves. So, yeah, it most definitely is an extension of colonialism. Mm-hmm. It's the rich, the elite. It's people that are not part of that culture preying on those and the history of those that are part of that culture. So it's it's not just about the money, it's not just about the context. There are people living today who are being impacted by this in a very negative way.
0: Yep. So next up, we're moving on to chapter two, titled 23 Feet Down. It's essentially kind of a history of how the looting really kicked off in Peru. So it's looking at that 1987 event at Huaca Rejada and say it again, the name of the city? Cipan. Cipan. So starting off this chapter, the author is traveling to Sipan to visit the site. He observes that sugarcane seems to be like a major product. And I think that's borne up. There's uh, some factories and stuff processing in the area. And as he's approaching, you know, the huaca rises over the fields. And so you can see it from a long ways off. And it's actually a 12-story structure. Gives you an idea of how big this sucker is. Started 2,000 years ago with the culture uh, that dominated Peru up until... From two thousand years ago to about fourteen hundred years ago, and this is a new culture to me. Uh, The technology of this culture is pretty remarkable. I gotta say.
1: I learned about this culture. I had a professor at FSE who this was one of the cultures she studied, and so I knew about them and I was familiar with some of their pottery. He touches on it a little bit, but yeah, their technology and their arts, arts artistry, yeah, and the metallurgy. It is amazing yeah um some of the technology and some of the things that they were making we've only recently just figured out how to do so you know these were a very
0: seems like they were on par with the most technologically advanced civilizations mm-hmm. in the world yeah at the time
1: yeah, yeah and definitely like Google their ceramics and Google their art it's beautiful and there I did note that this site there are some videos about it online because, I, as we know from the previous book, I like pictures. <laughs> and so I wanted to really see what the shape of this huaca was and what they looked like compared to other temples that I've seen from other cultures in South and Central America. There's a couple really neat YouTube videos that actually show you some photographs of the artifacts as well. So you can see a little bit more in detail what exactly these folks were
0: finding. Yeah. So the mochi culture had irrigation networks. They used molds for their pots, which actually to me, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, they
1: were, as far as we can tell, I think, I don't know, you know, how up to date this information is, but even this is one of the earliest cultures to mass produce ceramics. Yeah. That's a huge deal.
0: That's a huge deal. Yeah. And they made gold and silver objects, which is of course why they were a target. Also, they had figured out how to do gilding. So they would uh, do a light coat of gold over usually copper or something to make it look like it was gold. And some of this technology actually seems to have moved to Mexico right when this culture was kind of declining. So it, it really spread around and they practice warfare apparently, but not for an expansion, but for human sacrifices, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. I do want to point out, you know, we've been using the term huaca, which is essentially a temple, but it's Quechua. And it means any sacred or venerated object, but it's most often used to denote these pyramidal, pyramidal, pyramid shaped (laughs) structures that are along the Peruvian coast. So they were essentially temples. But just so you know that Huaca can be used in other contexts as well but this and, is the most common
0: and when we use it talking about this book at least so far we'll be using it to reference these yeah. pyramids or occasionally the, that spiritual force we referenced before yeah as well the using kind of the author's terminology the moche culture disappeared around 600 ce fits with for Lost Cities, you, you see signs of a series of climactic disasters.
1: Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, look at this. All of our books are tying together. Yep. Uh,
0: El Nino <laughs> that caused 18 months of rain, which is hard to imagine.
1: Sounds miserable.
0: Yeah. Although I, I noticed that the author kind of seems to be going with the lingo of lost cultures a little bit in this, which, we as we talked about, is not ideal because the moche multi-cul- culture did not disappear. Right. They, they changed... They joined other groups. They became something a little different that isn't, you know, recognizable and necessarily the same. But they are not gone. People are still there.
1: Important to note, though, on that front, he talks. I don't remember if it's this chapter or the next chapter, but he talks about a lot of the people in these villages that, um, especially the one by this huaca, are not direct descendants of the people that are buried in that huaca. They came mm-hmm. from other areas, right? And so that may play into at least a little bit how they justify what they do or cope with what they do. But I still don't know that that's valid. It's just something that was brought up in the book. We can
0: talk about that when you get to it. I have some thoughts on that, too.
1: Yeah. But just to set the context, right? you know, as you're reading this book, don't necessarily think that these folks are direct descendants of the Moche culture. But yes, the Moche culture is still around in some...
0: It became other groups. They They were eventually conquered by the Inca. Yeah. But again, that doesn't mean they disappeared. Right. So the Sipan Hwaka, I Huaca, th- this struck me as fascinating. It's so well made that, you know, in 2,000 years, it's only sunk 12 feet. Yeah, that wow.
1: to me seems pretty amazing. When Especially like if you look at Egyptian pyramids, I've seen documentaries where they talk about how much they've eroded. And obviously that's a different environment. That's a different structure and all that. But these were very well made.
0: Yeah. He talks a little bit about the Huaca's impact on Sipan. We'll get into that bit more, but essentially it didn't do anything good for this, the village. Fame. So, people, if you do a search for Sipan, it'll come up. I literally tried to do a search for Sipan town, got nothing.
1: Right. It's all the site. It's all the site. Yeah. And which is,
0: yeah. Yeah. It tells you a lot.
1: Right. And, you know, it made a few people rich. And like we talked about, a lot of these people that were made rich were not part of this village. And, possibly not even in Peru they were outside I don't even of Peru. know the
0: people in the anyone in the village including the ones doing the digging ended up in a good place with right.
1: this and they say here that it brought tourists but when i was reading on i'm like maybe he'll talk about it a little bit later but i'm like what tourist is going to come here and feel safe and want to come here there might yeah. be some guided tours from outside communities where they bus them in for a day or something like that. But it's not like they're coming to the hotels and saying and sipon and, you know, how you would expect tourism to help a community flourish. It's not doing that.
0: Yeah. And and again, well, I think we'll get to that a bit more, too. But definitely, the I don't think the village got anything from this and
1: i think even he says that like the hotels warn visitors away like don't stay here
0: yeah uh so his his first impression of the town is the gates and to the town are closed and people have draped cloths with signs over the gates basically threatening the archaeologist who'd done the work there yeah he is clearly not welcome and he eventually gets through the town to the site and is there by himself for a little bit until another archaeologist runs up and kind of gives him the tour. And then this archaeologist asks if he will smuggle him out of town in the trunk of his car.
1: I know. Can you imagine? Because he didn't want to be attacked, essentially, by so They would by throw things at, at him if they saw yeah. him in the car.
0: So it gives you kind of an idea of how intense things are. He said people used to throw stones at him, but they eventually... They had some police officers present, but they would get arrested for doing so. Now now they just like threaten him verbally, which guess, I'm not sure I prefer that much, frankly. Right. Yeah.
1: And I guess we should clarify as to why. And this goes back to what we were talking about in the previous chapter about how there's that whole idea that archaeologists are the enemy because they're preventing or not wanting these sites to be looted. And this site was essentially being protected by armed guards to keep the looters at bay. And as we talked about, that was the only work for them.
0: Well, and it's more than that, too. They think the archaeologists are doing the excavation just for themselves. Right. Yeah. They don't understand. And in this case, I believe they legitimately don't understand the difference. It kind of becomes clear that they're not entirely not understanding the difference is actually pretty reasonable, too, in their case, Mm because they apparently until not that long ago, even archaeology was not that distinguishable in Peru from from looting and frankly, in in. Archaeology in general has not been that distinguishable Right. quite often. There have been exceptions for a long, probably 100 years, but that's not long for a discipline. Right, yeah. And there's been a lot of bad practices even within that 100 years.
1: And those bad practices, some of them have really, I mean, it's not just the looters who have a history of exploiting different populations. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists have done that in the past as well. Right. Once you do something like that, 100 years is not going to be enough time to rectify that even, I mean, we're trying. I would say we're at the beginnings <laughs> stages of rectifying that. But I mean, we might not see that happen even in our lifetime. There's all, there's still possibly going to be people that do not trust archaeologists or do not like archaeologists because they know what has been done to them in the past.
0: Yep. And that's understandable, frankly.
1: Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So but the
0: Huaca in Sepan is called Huaca Rehada, which I had a little aggravated note, he couldn't have told us this name earlier because I was having a little <laughs> trouble keeping track of, of which was which. Um, but now we go into the story of how all of this stuff happened back in 1987. And so it starts with one family typically referred to as the Bernal brothers, and they are all named, but there's one in particular, which one is it? That is... Ernill. Ernill, yeah. Ernil in particular is more prominent and current, probably the most Significant for this story, at least.
1: He seems to kind of be the leader of that little group.
0: The rise and the fall, really, in some ways. And so, you know, these guys were a new kind of looter from the ritualized looting we talked about. They were in it for whatever they could get. They're well organized. They would chase off or threaten people off their sites. Um, So they're kind of thugs, essentially. Essentially, yeah,
1: he does talk about them. Yeah, they even chased off, like, other looters. Right, with Weapons yeah, yeah. So not people you would want to m- mess with.
0: No. And so Huaca itself, archaeologists had investigated at one point, but didn't find anything of interest. And it seemed like other looters had been testing it before it hadn't found anything. But Ernil had it in his head that there was something there. And I think essentially... The author says the aliens told him, which which tells us a lot. Right.
1: Well, and the aliens told him because he was taking a local drug that
0: a hallucinogenic a
1: hallucinogenic drug. He even, I guess, was talking about building like an alien landing pad in the back of his house and things. So he was not. And there was a
0: lot of alcohol involved. And they suggest there was some mental illness as Well, well.
1: The drug he was taking is one that the shamans would use during that ritualized looting, but he was using it for himself. He was using it daily. Right. Which which is not how it is supposed to be used. And so he was misusing something that was cultural, essentially, using it a lot, mixing it with alcohol. There may have been some mental illness involved. So it just all around was not a good situation for Ernell. And while he is the enemy, I don't know what you want to call it, in this story, I also like... He wasn't well. He wasn't well, yeah. And it's kind of sad.
0: Yeah, it really is.
1: One thing I do want to mention before we go on, though, is that the author talks about how looting is like an extractive industry, like mining, oil, or coal. But the difference is it's not regulated, right? And it's not subject to any taxes or anything like that. And it's essentially its only regulation is the market itself in which it created, right? And essentially the muscle power of the looters, like Ernil. He talks about how it depends on poverty and weak policing to thrive. Mm-hmm. And I think Ernil is a really good example of that. And
0: well, the whole village is. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it exploits the poor and it takes their, and this is important because I always tell people this, it takes their non-renewable resources. It Mm -hmm. extracts them and removes them from the people who essentially should have ownership over them. And it's just really sad. And as I'm reading through and I'm learning more about Ernil, there was no good outcome for this poor man.
0: No, it could have been better than it was. But yes. still, there was no yes. there was no options for him right. to get help or anything, really. Right.
1: And he talks about how, I mean, this community, this is a rural village. And I think, you know, it had dirt roads, no running water, nothing of that sort. So this was a very um, impoverished area that didn't have a lot of resources. And so it still is. importantly yeah, Right. Yeah. So it's not like Ernil could go to the neighborhood rehab center to get help.
0: Yep, Going back to the rock. When they investigated before, they found rough, narrow bricks, which they thought was a more recent culture. Still, I don't know why you would just say that's not interesting, but it wasn't until the Bernal brothers started pulling up uh, the smooth flat bricks they realized, oh, this is actually multi-culture. It's actually much older than they thought. It is both. You know, like we said, the cultures don't just disappear, and these things tend to get reused by different groups, even if they are entirely different. Oh, it's also kind of amazing that this Place was so completely forgotten considering how important it was for so long. Uh, there's a lot of culture legends that still persist through oral traditions and the author talks about an example called Huaca del Sol which essentially the Spanish diverted a whole river to wash it out looking for gold in that thing and I think they probably got quite a bit. Yeah,
1: it sounds like they got a lot.
0: But they destroyed two-thirds of this thing and 6,000 pounds of precious metals came out of it. Still... After all that, it's still 130 feet tall, though. I know. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. What must it have been like? Because people were seeing these these activities by the Spanish, they tended to keep stuff secret. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the best guess is that people were keeping this place secret to, to protect it. it yeah. And then it kind of became forgotten because of that, essentially. Yep. So there's a pretty detailed description of the Bernal brothers looting the Wakarhata. And so they are basically tunneling into this thing as far as I'm picturing in my mind.
1: I was having a hard time picturing exactly what they were doing. Obviously, it was very dangerous, but I know Ernal, he was digging in such a way that he was digging under a burial. He didn't know that at the time until it caved in.
0: Well, he jabbed his shovel up into it, it, yeah, which is a stupid thing to do.
1: Yeah, but I mean- just digging into something like that
0: from a side from the they're, they're basically doing tunnels into this mountain. yeah
1: so i was like what i was having a hard time picturing exactly what was going on and i think part of it is just my archaeology brain i keep wanting to think like an archaeologist okay. that's not how these folks were excavating they were doing it as efficiently as possible to get I, in and get out and get what they wanted
0: and secretly as possible yeah, yeah. I felt like these, I uh, followed these guys pretty well. I had actually a little more trouble on how the archaeologists were doing it in the next chapter, which Mm -hmm. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that.
1: And it's also, we should note that these guys were going out at night to excavate. They weren't going out in broad daylight. So it's not legal. (laughs) Yeah. That makes it even more confusing Right, It was all in the dark. Yeah.
0: Well, this kind of, I guess, kind of fit with me when we read the dig uh, a year ago now. They talked about how one of the mounds had been looted, and basically they dug a deep shaft and lowered a child down. Yeah. Not the most safe practices in general, I would say. So yeah, they're digging what we understand to be tunnels into this mound, and Ernil, for whatever reason, thrusts his shovel up into the roof, which is a good way of getting buried alive. It almost happened Yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but basically a shower of precious metals comes down on top of him. Yeah. I noted here that this is true for the whole book, actually. It's not happy and I'm not interested in talking about like all of the specific gold they found necessarily. But the narrative is really well done.
1: Yeah, it really is. The detail. And it's one of those books where he gives a lot of detail, but somehow he manages to not get bogged down too much in the detail to where you're like, oh my gosh, let's just move on.
0: Yeah, I noted that, especially in the next chapter, how he did a really good job of indicating how meticulous the archaeology was without slowing the whole thing down and being boring. Yeah. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. There's a lot of skill in this writing. So with
1: Ernell, it was his brothers helping. I guess he had some other folks helping as well. But I did note that Segundo Carlos Bernal, his brother, who I guess was kind of the, for lack of a better word, the getaway driver. <laughs> he was in the Peruvian Air Force. Yeah.
0: Was, is a key.
1: Yeah. So I just, you know, and I guess he was living on base at the time when Mm -hmm. this was taking place. So I was like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) I'm sure he could get into big trouble.
0: Right. And he did. Yeah. Actually.
1: Yeah, he did. But then his and this struck me as odd, too, because of how we've talked a lot about the economic situation in the village. As far as I can tell, the Bernal family wasn't as badly off is a lot of other people Um, in the village. You know, they own livestock. They had a tractor, which was a huge status symbol at the time. They were shareholders in the local sugar cooperative. But then you take that, I was like, well, what the heck, (laughs) you know? But then you take it into broader context where you think about Ernall doing drugs and that situation and just the instability of the village as a whole. I'm like, okay, maybe that does still yeah, make and just, and just the selfishness of the, and
0: just because they weren't poor for the village's standards doesn't mean they weren't right poor.
1: but it just it, you know, it just kind of came out of somewhere. I was like, no, wait a second. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But yeah, and I guess they even say in the book, like he didn't necessarily need the money or at least not that much money, but like the drugs and the greed had just kind of consumed them.
0: It seems like the classic thing you'll see in movies where a group of people work together to find buried treasure or something, and then they all get paranoid about it. And that's kind of what seems to almost have happened. Like there yes. was, they pulled out all this stuff and cached it around their house and like all the weirdest places. Oh
1: my gosh. I
0: just, <laughs> they
1: had some things stashed in their chicken coop. Buried under it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And, like, they emptied out, like, the radio and put stuff in the radio. Yeah. And uh, so this becomes a point where, you know, the villagers notice all of this, of course. You're not going to keep something like that secret. Um, They generally keep them away. He wanted to keep digging, but his family finally convinced him to stop. And then they start, you know, courting the buyers, essentially. Yeah. And that's when the, the narrative shifts to looking at some of the individual buyers that are involved in this. Mm-hmm. And those are a whole different set of personalities, I guess.
1: <sighs> Which in some ways, to me, was more upsetting.
0: These are the guys that are the problem, or part of the problem. Like, the end buyer is the ultimate problem, but these guys are more the problem than the Bernal brothers, even.
1: And, like, so, as part, when they were excavating this site, one of the things they found was a back flap, which is a piece of armor, and Mm -hmm. it was gold. And I think this was one of the things they buried in the chicken coop, which I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So they, you know, this is a bigger object that they couldn't hide as easily so they were trying to get rid of it quickly i guess and plus i guess it's fairly rare oh yeah so one of his customers he has several like regular customers and one of his customers was an american who was living in lima and he became an interested in indian art while he was stationed there as a u.s diplomat yep. <laughs> and i even wrote in my notes good grief with multiple explanation points and he retired and became a full-time antiquities dealer. And he he also used the rescuing excuse. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're, you are you were a diplomat. You have to have known better. So give me a break.
0: They all know better. Yeah. I, think. I don't think there's a single one that doesn't really know. Or they're intentionally not knowing, yeah. you know, which is the same thing.
1: And then he also had the Italian immigrant and... he i guess he was a former hotel manager which in my mind i was like hotel manager isn't really that big of a deal but okay (laughs) i guess maybe in peru it is he even admitted on tv to digging up tombs yeah and it's like they just these guys know and there's weak enforcement like they know that essentially they're above the law
0: this guy particularly knows how to play that game
1: yeah yeah oh my gosh and
0: So he was actually had been arrested several times, but nothing could be proven because what he figured out he could do is it doesn't all he had to do to protect himself was to register any of the artifacts he bought illegally. Yeah. And not send them out of the country, which becomes an issue later. Right.
1: Yeah. He's not supposed to send them out of the country.
0: Quoted here. It's a charade of a conservation system, a poor imitation of France's comprehensive inventory of non-exploitable cultural property. And it protects the wealthy investor collectors while punishing the looters who supply them. Yep. Which, again, that kind of brings back to what we've been talking about.
1: Oh, and then he talks about there was another collector who lent an ancient in- Incan necklace to the first lady in 1985. This is the first lady of Peru to wear to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a huge problem there and people involved that are in upper level politics that are, you know, in business internationally. It's crazy to me. Yep. And I do like, not that I like, but he goes, you know, he talks a little bit about who the Bernal brothers customers are. And then he talks a little bit about how the Bernal brothers interact with the villagers um, who obviously are of a completely different economic class than their customers. And they, at some point, allow villagers into the pits when they're done getting what all they think they can get from them that's a value to get essentially the scraps, what they call scraps, which I'm like, no, right? <laughs> they're not scraps. But they had 15 minutes in groups of 10. And if they didn't get out in time, the brothers threatened to bury them alive. And I'm just like. Was this like some weird goodwill gesture to the looters, so that the looters wouldn't?
0: It's buying their yeah. It's you know, it's, like th- with with them, we got at least the scraps. With the archaeologists, we got nothing. Right. I can see that that yeah. understanding there.
1: And it just it blew, it blew my mind. They were like the little mobsters of this village. They
0: really were. So the Italian individual, as soon as he heard they what they had found, he immediately withdraws a ton of money and goes straight to Sipan. And he arrives there about the same time as another one. And they basically end up selling a whole bunch of stuff right then and there.
1: And it's interesting how they, the Bernal brothers are so in tune with this market. They're able to kind of play these two collectors off of each other mm-hmm. to up the prices. And, it's, and
0: get word out to the others. Yeah. yeah. It's
1: a really, really complex kind of network.
0: And then it gets to the kind of the complexity of the relationship with looters and archaeologists. It sounds like particularly in Peru, but this applies at least partially elsewhere in the U.S. and everything as well. There is another collector named Raul who had been in the trade for 20 years and fantasied himself a connoisseur. You know, he courted everybody, basically archaeologists included, and allowed archaeologists to come and study his collection He's one of the few people that knows much about what's called the, I think, the Chansey culture. And little is known about them, though, because the antiquities trade has basically destroyed every trace of this culture. So he essentially had a corner on knowledge on this whole culture, which, you know, as we talked about at best, it could only be superficial.
1: And, you know, how he has a really good discussion in there about how archaeologists especially in cases like this are kind of forced to work with Mm -hmm. these people because it's really the only way to gather any information at all and we see this in florida i can think of several examples just off the top of my head and i don't want to get into it in detail because i feel like that could take me on a whole nother tangent right but it is an issue and it's one of those really ethical conundrums that archaeologists have we don't want to work with these people but at the same time
0: We genuinely care about this stuff, and we will if we have to.
1: Yeah, and it does not make us feel good. No, and it does not. It's not something we want to do. But in the way the system is essentially rigged, sometimes we have no other
0: choice. Yeah. Uh. So Raul was also, unlike some of the others, at least known as a smuggler, and he'd been caught a couple times, and actually ended up going to their prison for a while
1: but he was never tried never tried yeah
0: and no one knows quite how he was released Mm -hmm. and so it's suspected that this was kind of meant as a crackdown on some of this stuff or political maneuvering but you know it's really unclear i guess as to why what was this was happening
1: not particularly well executed
0: around this time the guys who had done the looting basically were There's a lot of money involved. And as we talked about, that tends to make people paranoid. And so they kind of got together and had an argument like Ernil decided he should have a lion's share of it and the others disagreed. And basically they were threatened and chased off. One of the looters said, screw it, and then reported them. Right. (laughs) Which I guess I'm glad he did.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it goes to show how while this is a very complex network and system, it can be undone and unraveled pretty quickly because it all operates, you know, illicitly. There's no rules. Right. You make your own rules. And if you don't get what you want, you can just go to the police and take the whole thing down and nobody gets anything, essentially.
0: (laughs) So next, we move perspectives to Walter Alva, who is the at least locally infamous archaeologist that's so hated by the village. He and, was the
1: one who all those banners were directed at that were on the fence that you see when you first come into the village.
0: Right. And so his first knowledge of this, he, he basically uh, runs a local museum. He made it, I guess, fairly good, but it started off basically by someone's collection, with which many of them worldwide do. He first gets called in because the police have found some of this collection uh, and they think it's illegal. Someone was trying to sell it and they, they intercepted it. And essentially he's like, yeah, I don't know what these things are, but clearly this is not allowed. And so they trace this back to Baka Rihada and he has to like basically bring armed guards with him. And they do a raid on the house.
1: Yeah, they do a raid on the Bernal Brothers' house.
0: Right. And they get a lot of things, but apparently miss quite a lot as well. Quite
1: a lot. It's not, Yeah, the whole time I was reading this, I was like, oh my gosh, check the chicken coop. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so then they go and they start working on what's left of the site and investigating that. And after a while, Oliva realizes that They haven't gotten everything because things keep showing up on the black market. Yeah. So they go back again to raid the house and they bring police and a camera crew and uh, Ernil, who's been declining this whole time, makes a run for it and the police shoot and and ultimately kill him.
1: Yeah. And it it says that before this all happened, I guess... His family was trying to get him to see a doctor because essentially he had experienced a full psychotic break. Yeah, and he refused, and so you know you have somebody who is in that position, then you have the police and the TV crews and everything turning up. It's just not going to end. Well. Yeah,
0: and for his part, Alva condemned the killing, and honestly, I don't imagine why it was seen as necessary. I mean, you know, I wasn't there, but. Like
1: he was obviously not or in he, his he right was, space. He was running.
0: You're here here to raid a house. It's not like he's yeah. a dangerous threat at this point. Yeah, you know. I don't know.
1: And essentially, you're you're setting him up to be a martyr.
0: And that's exactly what happened. Yep. to the village in particular. Mm-hmm. So for Sipan's point of view, like we said, he became a bit of a martyr. The elitists come in from their you know from their understanding and they close off the site and their hope for future wealth. And they take it for themselves. The village itself got nothing from this. And the Peruvian government kind of, well, they dropped the ball on this.
1: For sure,
0: 100%. They were getting charges that they were neglecting the village. And this blew my mind. So they built a steel bridge for the village that collapsed the very day it opened. Yeah, I don't know how you do that. I
1: was like, oh, my gosh.
0: I feel like someone should be going to prison over that, frankly. Um, and there was another situation where the king and queen of Spain were potentially going to visit. And so they started putting dirt on the roads. Then everyone's excited they're finally going to pave the roads. It didn't happen. The roads left unpaved and they're just dusty, messy. Fell apart. You yeah. Know?
1: And it was it broke my heart when he was talking to Ernal's father and how his father said he wished his son had never found that tomb.
0: Yeah for the Bernal family this doesn't yeah. nothing goes well here um so Ernel has died one of the other brothers was crushed by his father's tractor the brother who was in the air force is ejected because of his involvement in this Yeah. another one is maybe only now recovering from sound kind of like a couple of decades of alcoholism he clear and his oh and his wife has died of cancer yeah and so you know again with the spiritual connection with that and the kind of at least at least you could say superstition if not a bit mm-hmm. more than that he sees all that as connected yep you know he's remarried and he's got a new home it's clearly for this village quite wealthy but uh, at least from the author's perspective he you know he's like this this wasn't worth it
1: yeah and then he talks about how like he built his house i said i guess on the same property his new house on the same property and the old house is just kind of there wasting away
0: all his cows were stolen yeah. Just like,
1: I know. He was just goodness. telling that and I was like, oh, my gosh, this poor man. The hits just kept coming.
0: Yeah. Um. So that just kind of highlighted at the end how, you know, we talked about how the poor are preyed upon in this situation. And essentially, no one in this village got anything from this. They didn't come off better for this. And there is opportunity for that, too. You know, this is a, a major site. Oh, and we didn't talk about National Geographic who apparently, I wasn't quite aware of this, has a habit of using photos of looted artifacts from the collectors, which really irritates me. I'm hoping they don't do that anymore. I but hope not. In the 80s and 90s, I guess it was still a thing.
1: And other publications, too, major publications. Yeah. And it was funny because when I was Googling images of this site, a lot of the artifacts that they talk about the Bernal Brothers finding are the ones that pop up first.
0: Yeah, yeah exa- 100%. So, yeah, this was basically a bad deal for everyone at this level. And on that happy note, this is kind of the low point for the depressing part, at least today. <laughs> the next one is all about the archaeology and the excavation of the site. It's not entirely happy either, but at least it's more like technically interesting, I guess. And you kind of start to see the contrast mm-hmm. really clearly what the archaeologists are learning versus what the looters Destroyed. didn't, didn't yeah. <laughs> learn. Like they, hadn't, they had none of this information. And right. this all came from doing the excavations. So I think it's well done. Last one for today, we're looking at chapter three.
1: The excavators.
0: The excavators. And so this starts off with an interview with Walter Alva, the archaeologist. And essentially, Sapan started as salvage archaeology, which is something we've done but Mm -hmm. i haven't done it associated with looters have you done it that way barbara
1: i not directly i've worked on sites that were being salvaged for other reasons but had been usually subjected to looters in the past so we we documented like looting pits and stuff like that but we weren't directly there as a result of looting
0: when i've I've done salvage archaeology it has been like there's a construction project and they uncover something that wasn't expected and essentially salvage archaeology in that case is, uh, you know, you're kind of quicker and dirty than, dirtier than we like, mm-hmm. but it's an important part of archaeology for sure.
1: And I do, it, this salvage operation, was it was unexpected, right? So there right. was no funding, at least initially. Well, no one
0: believed there was anything else Right, there.
1: yeah. Nobody thought there was going to be anything more than like ceramic sherds and mm-hmm. unfortunately Which, human remains. frankly, and,
0: we still should be recording.
1: yes. But, I know I kept thinking that the whole time. I'm like, ceramics are so cool, especially moche ceramics. (laughs) Yeah.
0: One of my criticisms of this chapter in particular, and this is more directed at the author potentially, is it very intensely focuses on the precious metals. Which is on some level, yes, but then there's a few times it said there's it basically implied there's nothing of value here.
1: But I think that's a I think that's a result of the black market and what the black market finds valuable more so than like the archaeology. Yeah.
0: And I'm hoping maybe we'll get more context on that, too. Yeah. Because kind of going through my head this whole time was like, yeah, there's people looking for the gold. But how many, you know, and, and also a lot of focus on the elite interpretation. Yeah. And how but how I hope we talk at some point about how many, you know, of the common people's Burials are damaged by people looking for this stuff, too. Yeah, but that's I think in this,
1: because he's talking about this specific site, which is, right. as far as looking at elites of the Moche, Moche culture, it's actually pretty interesting, and it, he talks a little bit oh, about how... I agree, especially because they're so unknown. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just more a result of what is being excavated that is pertinent to the story than anything right. else. But and maybe we'll that, find out later. But I
0: hope that we can get into some of that other stuff at some point. And Moche the
1: Pottery is so cool. So I'm hoping <laughs> they can get into more of that. Yeah. But I know that that could be a book in and of itself probably too.
0: Yeah. So when they started, the uh, residents of Sipan already wanted to kill him. And I don't think that is... Metaphor, I think that is quite literal. Uh, And he was convinced that if you have burials here, there's going to be more. And, you know, the looters he knew tended to have good intuition, too. But it does talk a little about archaeological intuition, which is a real thing. A lot of times archaeologists who've been working in a specific area can know like there will be a site there. And sometimes they can tell you why, but why would this site versus that one? I don't know that they always know. Yeah,
1: I think sometimes it's just it reminds you of another site you worked on that was in a similar environment, right. and it like even if the environment doesn't necessarily make sense for a site to be there, you're like, eh, let's just back up and take a look. So yeah, intuition is 100% real, and I guess looters have that as well. <laughs> but maybe not as fine-tuned in some cases, which makes sense Mm -hmm. because they're working at speed.
0: Now we talk a little bit about how modern archaeology and looting in Peru were often kind of blurred in the lines a bit more. And we kind of touched on that. But like I said, it kind of explains why people don't necessarily see a difference. In this context in particular.
1: Yeah. And the way I explain it is there is like antiquarianism and then there's archaeology. And early archaeology was essentially antiquarianism, which was just looking for the cool things to either make money or put in museums or what have you. Put in
0: your private room. Yeah. It wasn't
1: necessarily to learn about people of the past. It was just to find the cool things that people made in the past but he also does a really good job even though like those early antiquarians and looters and things like that he i think he says we owe a perverse debt of gratitude to them which
0: uh, i feel i feel like that applies maybe a bit more to this context yeah like there is uh, maybe a little something there in like the US at least and i'm talking US because that's where my experience is it's not uncommon for us to find a site from the locals or sometimes from a looter, but we don't owe them a debt of gratitude for finding that site because, as we've said, that site was fine until they started messing around right. with it.
1: There's to me, there's a big difference between someone who happens upon a site and doesn't destroy it and notifies us, right, versus a looter who is actively destroying a site, like
0: right. There's even though it's getting finer lines, there is isn't a di- even a difference between people who just pick stuff off, off the surface versus those who actively dig. Dig, yeah. Don't do either, please. Right. <laughs> but actively digging is by far the most destructive thing people do. Yeah. We talk about another site that happened after Huaca uh, when the looting craze was going on. And this was essentially a property owned by a wealthy family that they let people come on and dig up stuff. And so a researcher was working on it. And using aerial photography, he tried to count how many looter pits were. And he said he gave up at 100,000.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't have such a hard time picturing what that would even look like. (laughs) Like I honestly, I
0: feel like I can picture it too well.
1: Maybe I just don't want to picture it. I know. (laughs) Because I know you and I, when we were doing some work during COVID, we were out at a site that had quite a few looter pits, old looter pits. They were definitely not recent, but to me, that was a lot. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't near this many. There were like maybe... Five or six.
0: So here's a little bit of a bone to pick with the book. They talk about establishing the Museo Nacional Sican. That's my best guess pronunciation again. It's quoted here that almost unique to the world does not display a single looted item. And I think that's fair because that is almost unique to the world. Even the rural ones we have here tend to have a lot of collected things. Yep. However, I felt like it was doing a little too much conflating archaeology with museums in this context.
1: Yeah. They're
0: not the same things. We often, there's often cooperation there, but they're definitely, they're entirely different disciplines. Yeah. Yeah, that's and true. And different focus too, mm-hmm. right? And I don't need to go into it more here, but I just like, it mm, kind of thought we needed to clarify that a little bit better. And I thought this section in particular tended to focus a little more on the things than I wanted, this this particular section of this chapter. So that could be, we'll see how it, how it kind of plays out overall. I think later on in the chapter, it redeemed itself very nicely, I would say. But also, I feel like there could be a little bit of maybe a side effect of this person not being a trained archaeologist.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, he's a journalist, right? right? And he's, as a journalist, I think in their discipline, they're trying to write about what sells the story. Yeah. And so I'm trying to keep that in mind as I read this like gold, silver, things like that
0: sell the story. And keep, even keeping that in mind, I think he's doing a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm just noticing a little every now and then. And in this case, like I said earlier, I think sometimes he's speaking other people's perspectives. Yeah. But when he comes through and speaks with his own voice, it's very clear, I think, that he understands this very deeply. So I gave him a lot of credit there, too. So it just kind of got me there. But then, like I said, later on, I think clearly not what he's talking about. I just had a little moment of being worried about it.
1: I enjoyed when he was talking about, like, funding for this site. Oh, my. <laughs> um. You and I both did CRM, and I'm sure there were times where money was really tight and you were just trying to get by. But
0: never had it this bad.
1: Not this bad. Uh, so, first of all, the site had to be guarded by police at all times. And was a barbed it was, wire fence. And barbed wire fence, although apparently it was rickety and yeah. not very stable. But, like, so the funding for the salvage archaeology came mainly from our, all of us savings and support from a pasta manufacturer, not in money, but in noodles. Right. So there were times when he was paying his workers, and I will commend Oliver for the fact that he always tried to find Peruvian workers to mm-hmm. work on a site with yeah. him, but he paid them in a mixture of money and noodles, macaroni.
0: And this is the initial yeah. phases. He does get some more funding yeah. later, and tying to your Peruvian workers, the author does note that Almost all his investors were were foreign investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, investors maybe the wrong term but financiers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but he always tried to hire locals to work the project which I think is really important. Plus they're, you know, more knowledgeable than somebody you would bring in from another country or something.
0: I feel like this, yeah. I feel like this would have been tricky, but he might have done himself a bit of a favor if he'd found a way to hire some of the locals. Like the the Sapan locals. I wish they would
1: have gotten more into that. I'm I'm wondering if it was just past that point, like because I mean they were yeah. threatening his life.
0: I know. I don't. So... I don't and they're so focused on getting the things and getting their chance. Yeah. Could you trust them? It's I feel, a fine line. Yeah, I know, and it's it would be tricky, and I'm saying that. And you know, as not being there, so I may be totally out of line.
1: I mean, it talks about how, like, occasionally they were w- awoken by like warning shots, and well, they said and, they had to
0: use tear gas to chase and, off looters. Yeah, and,
1: and they had to be sheltered from like flying rocks and right b- broken bottles and rotten fruit. So,
0: and I, I guess, and this isn't necessarily his all his responsibility, but I yeah. guess so much of that resentment was largely around the idea that something was being stolen, an opportunity is being stolen from the locals. Yeah, and if we. And had, I, They'd found a way of giving them some opportunities for jobs, tourism, yeah. businesses, a bridge that didn't collapse. I feel like there it could have ended better. Yeah, I just
1: I wonder if he came in after that point. Plus he was brought in by the police. And he was focused so...
0: on the task at hand. It yeah. was panicked. I'm not saying he was necessarily at fault here at this moment. It's just kind of an overall thing as like and it's not even necessarily his responsibility, but there was opportunity here that was wasted.
1: Yeah. I just I don't know how you would, even as a public archaeologist, if there were a group of people threatening my life, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable having them on site with me. You know what I'm saying? So I can't necessarily blame him, which I know you're not doing. But like he was brought in if he would have brought this is why we need archaeologists at sites earlier. Right. <laughs> if he was brought in before it became so contentious, there would have been an amazing opportunity here. Right. But I think he was brought in and I don't know. I mean, I know, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But...
0: And this was salvage. Yeah. He didn't have time to plan this. Right. You know, I'm, I want to make sure I'm giving him a lot of credit. I just feel like this could have gone better.
1: Yeah. But I mean, he hired Peruvians rather than bringing in... You know, making it a field school for American students or what? Not that that's bad. That's a wonderful opportunity for American students. But in this situation, and especially with the economy being the way it is, bringing in Peruvians, I think, is really important and empowering for them. I thought it was funny that he mentions, you know, he had a colleague that gave him $900 and is an emergency down payment to keep it going. I'm like, wow, $900 doesn't go very far. But he also gave him his very first camera. So right. yay, because a camera is for documenting the site, which is something very important to archaeologists, which is one of the main differences between looting and archaeology. So I thought that was interesting that he noted the camera.
0: So they begin working in the tomb. Uh, almost right away, they found a second very large tomb. In just 12 hours of excavation, they found over 1,000 bowls, pots, and jars. Um, most of them modeled that sacrifice ceremony we've been talking about a bit and kind of established how important Waka was for the culture.
1: I just he describes it, the second tomb, as like a tableau of the of the human sacrifice ceremony and it had like figurines of the mm-hmm. prisoners and just the detail that went into this is phenomenal to me. Yeah. Like what a magnificent piece of cultural art this would have been
0: is because they recovered it safely. yeah yeah. hooray but the other tomb remember the guys just smashed all these pots i know yeah it it gave a date to the chamber so you know that's something they couldn't get with the other one and
1: it also provided context for some of the things that The Bernal brothers had found, you know, when they raided the house, they recovered, but they couldn't figure out what they were. But they found similar items in this tomb that were able to provide context. Unfortunately, like, for example, the gold peanut beads that the Bernal brothers sold off separately and some of the local villagers were able to get when they were uh, scavenging. The Bernal brothers didn't recognize that they were actually all parts of one piece of a necklace. Yeah. Things like that tend to happen in looting situations too where one item kind of gets dispersed amongst numerous people and good luck getting any information from that
0: yep and so they find a number of bodies one is the lord and the rest are people buried with the lord is this the one that had two people that had been dead for a long time buried there or the other one that's the other one yeah okay the suggestion is that these are people that were sacrificed when he died and of course, there's the precious metals and stones you would expect. Ear beads, uh shell spools.
1: Burial shrouds.
0: Which the, the description I have was like I added, like, holy cow, these were quite the pieces of jewelry these ear yeah. spools were. And he keeps tying it back to how much of this is lost from that other tomb. Yeah. Which I appreciated. That's the thing that kinda needs to be hammered home. He didn't overdo it, but he keeps kind of mentioning, like, you know, and like you said, with the peanut necklace, like these things were all things that we could have learned from and we now we don't.
1: He talks about the amount of like, you know, when the Bernal brothers, they mentioned that there were sheets of gold that were just destroyed and so they didn't know what those sheets of gold were. And then they found various very delicate golden silver objects that included these pieces of sheet gold that resembled the deceased's facial features. Yeah. And they even had one that went into the mouth and gave an impression of their teeth. Right. So, I mean, if you look at it from like a forensic anthropologist's point of view, how amazing that would be for like reconstruction and things like that. And all that was gone from the tomb that was looted.
0: And one thing that distinguishes very nicely between the looting and the archaeology was the peanut necklace you talked about. The one that was looted was sold to a bunch of different collectors. Mm -hmm. The one that was collected archaeologically has been a piece of a traveling exhibit ever since. Yeah. So instead of sitting in someone's dusty room, this is going around and people are experiencing it, seeing it, learning from it. Yeah, I went
1: online because I was trying to picture like the golden peanut necklace and what it looked like. And I found pictures of it online because it is part of that exhibit. And the craftsmanship is-
0: No kidding. Like that's stunning. Frankly, and I know you'll agree with me, the precious metal bit is the least interesting part of this. The craftsmanship and the imagery involved in these things yeah. is what is just mind-blowing to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, the detail, you know, the engravings, and it talks a little bit early on about some of the weaving, some of the uh-huh. fabric that was found and how this was Part of their storytelling tradition and it's amazing to me it breaks my heart to know that there's just some stuff that will never be pieced together that we'll never be able to learn from
0: and so the lord buried in this tomb we know that he died about 35 to 45 he was five feet five
1: i guess tall by that time standard yeah Roche yeah standards.
0: tall uh, the death time was pretty standard for that time mm-hmm. i guess he had signs of early arthritis uh they couldn't determine the cause of death there was little supposition that he died from drinking blood from the sacrifices but like
1: well they well they talked about how he had evidence of parasites and oh, things like that that, okay. that would have possibly come from the drinking of human blood i think they say what you would expect from someone who was drinking essentially as part human of the remains ritual.
0: yeah do it on regular um had signs that he'd been cradle boarded as a child so as I understood it, this is basically a baby carrier. Yeah, it's People like a baby it. backpack. And they used uh, apparently wood on the back mm-hmm. is how this had to have gone. Um, sometimes that would change the shape of the skull yeah. a little bit.
1: Little babies have a soft spot on the back of their right. head. Well, the whole as, skull is pretty yeah, soft. Yeah, as are cradle boarded Because I think they wrap them to the board
0: mm. with fabric. So they protect their necks probably. Yeah,
1: though. so they're kind of stuck on that board. And over time, they get a little flat spot on the back of their head
0: but they know that this wasn't this practice wasn't intentionally changing the shape because right. it's irregular yeah from so the child to like a lot person. of
1: people are familiar with I think it's mayan or Aztec culture where they would purposely deform their skull yeah. this is not that
0: right yeah I'll, and that's actually interesting because it shows that at least his his early childhood was the same as everyone else's mm-hmm. even though probably the rest of his life was quite different
1: I found some of the Faunal remains that they found to be really cool, like a flamingo feather. I can't imagine the preservation, like the environment that would allow a feather to stay intact for the most part. They found mollusk shell.
0: The preservation, but also the archaeological techniques. Yes.
1: I oh, yeah. 100%. That. That's some
0: pretty impressive work. That
1: If you were just plowing through that site, you would have never, ever noticed that that flamingo oh. feather even existed.
0: Even a lot of archaeologists, I think, would struggle to mm-hmm. do that well.
1: Yeah. But like mollusk shell, which was revered for its meat and its shell. And the closest it was found is on the coast of Ecuador. So you can establish that. That trade network, as well, by mm-hmm. looking at the objects that were found at this site. And I also want to note as they were figuring out who these individuals were, another really important difference between how they were treated by the archaeologists versus how they were treated by looters. I think at some point, all of us, like he is the lord that was excavated, was to be treated like royalty essentially, like modern and- royalty. Yeah, like modern, like a modern dignitary royalty uh, with all rights that that person would have as far as, you know, his remains being treated with a reverence and respect. So I think that's really important to point out because I know there's, we can get into a whole discussion about how in the past archaeologists have sometimes treated human remains And this is an example of where it was recognized that this is a very significant Mm -hmm. and a situation deserving of a high level of respect. Of course, that, that goes for all human remains, but I just wanted to make sure I pointed that out. Yep.
0: Good point. And so this is the tomb where they found the seven people buried with him, three men, three women, and a child. And the men and the child were buried. But the women, because their remains were kind of scattered, they could tell that They actually had been dead before they were buried here, which raises some interesting questions on perspective of death in this culture. Yeah. You know, I like the quote, essentially, it settled some questions, but it raised many more, which Which, is how that works.
1: That's archaeology in a nutshell right there. You go in for one question, you come out with 20 more.
0: (laughs) Yep, And that's half the fun, frankly. Yeah. So they finishing up their work in 1988, they did find another tomb. Uh, They called this the Bird Priest. So this is a thing they'd seen depictions of in Mochi work, but they had no real context for what this was. So this was a person crazy, complicated headdress. A uh, hundred and seventy gilded copper platelets, part of this headdress. Like,
1: I don't know how this individual would have held their head up.
0: Well, that's why it's gilded, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because was like, it was pure copper that would not have yeah. worked. I don't think. And. Because they're buried with it, of course, doesn't necessarily mean that they wore it, right? Right. That's, that's true, that's too. That's something to keep in mind, too. That's because true too. we talked about the gold back flaps, um, but those were a ceremonial. Mm-hmm. We know for sure, because they would have been too heavy to really wear. Right. And soft, frankly. Yeah. Wouldn't want to yeah. wear it. And so Oliva presented his work and tried to keep it uh, secret, but obviously it was very unsuccessful, and kind of everything exploded from there.
1: I was going to say, at one point, it was... Uh described as like the Peruvian version of King Tut's tomb or the Temple of Ur or even like the terracotta soldiers in China. As far as publicity, it was up there with a lot of very well-known sites. But, I mean, although I'm sure it made it a little bit more difficult in some ways, it did allow for like the potential for more funding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So whereas they were living in tents at one point and getting things thrown at them they were able to create more hospitable quarters for the crew working there so that's nice i guess so in
0: 1989 they come back with more funding i assume and they find yet another tomb this time 16 feet below the surface that's a long way down
1: that yeah and, and this
0: is where i started to have trouble understanding how this excavation was working because the looters were digging tunnels and initially they're going into the tunnels but were they actually working in tunnels? Because that does not sound like that's sustainable over a long period or remotely safe beyond, you know, a few days maybe. Yeah. So they almost have to be doing their excavation more like we would imagine doing excavation, I feel. Yeah. Would I you agree?
1: This okay. is where, yeah, I don't, I would need to see pictures. I know right. you're shocked.
0: <laughs> and so this was yet another... Elite from the multi-culture and had a lot of similar objects, but it was clearly a less formal burial. Um, instead of like a whole chamber, he was buried in a pit. There was a, some kind of oddly loaded interpretations of this one that I wasn't sure if there was basis for it or if it was adding some flair to it. It's a little gruesome, just a heads up to people. But apparently, there is a young woman buried there too. He describes her as splayed out, like she was thrown in the pit alive, and then a llama was dropped on top of her, and then they're buried alive. I don't, I'm wondering if there's, if that interpretation is, you know, it feels like that could be a bit of a stretch.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about, I would need to see more of this. I mean, I could see how, I mean, I know human sacrifice was a thing, right? right? And I know in different cultures, especially in that area of
0: the world, is. And we have to remember, it's not necessarily seen as how we would see it.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, it's possible, but I would just need more information. It seemed like a a lot of
0: detail that is hard to get at, I guess. Yeah. And just made me a little, and he doesn't cite any references in this too. So I couldn't look anything up in this case. Yeah. He does talk about the uh, spider head necklace bead. Did you look these up?
1: I didn't look those up, no, but I meant to. I made a note to, and I never did.
0: These, I think, of everything we talked about, I might actually include in the video version because these are cool. Yeah. They are cups on one side and then actually amazingly thin wire, gold wire going under it. And then on the wire is a spider, like a spider web, only it's a person's head, a man's head. It's The craftsmanship is just mind-boggling they're actually and they're and this kind of irritated me because i like well how large are these these seem quite like they would be pretty large but they described them as beads and i couldn't hardly find anything that had any like scale to them because it's about the gold right when it's being shared usually which irritated the the heck out of uh, me
1: no scales including no in the-
0: scales off- i finally found one where they were like photographed in the burial that gave me an idea oh. but otherwise i had i couldn't figure out what these could have been well
1: that's unfortunate because i expect to see scales right. in my photography
0: well it's like i said it's about the gold i think a lot of times yeah unfortunate well and i wasn't seeing like official reports either in this case i was seeing the probably the national geographic photos and that kind of thing so they found other items some that tied into the previous ones i think this man was uh 5'3 he was older, so he died around forty-five to fifty-five years old.
1: Well, they did DNA testing between on them. the two now, and yeah. so they
0: determined that they were actually blood relatives.
1: Yeah, which is so cool. Right. So you're looking at possibly like a multi-generation burial site, and of course there could have been a third. It may have been like a son, father, and grandfather situation, right. but you know the site was looted.
0: They think that the looted site may have been a middle generation. And they actually say that they think that it might have been two burials. Yeah. Maybe another um lord and bird priest yeah. situation.
1: Could, I mean, if that is the case, it could be the first hereditary monarchy in the Americas, well, as I far think, as we know. I
0: think, seems like they pretty much confirmed that it is yeah. the first known hereditary monarchy. Yeah,
1: it would have just been nice to have- More
0: information. It, yeah. And so the looters kind of went wild with these finds and started going all over the country, digging up all kinds of things. And some of them are people have been doing it for a while. Some of the people are just desperate for any chance and good fortune. There's no real telling how many tombs were destroyed, but it does describe at least one about 40 miles south of Sepan. It was as rich as these tombs, but it wasn't as many. as rich in quotation marks. And essentially a local farmer found it and was using it as kind of like a deposit when he needed something, he would sell a little bit.
1: Rich- I know, I, I found this kind of yeah, so for a long time, he was just kind of essentially taking what he needed from it slowly, and then with this sapon craze or whatever as looters fire. like just kind of kicked him out and it, i mean it sound. i don't know he doesn't specify i don't think whether or not this was on the farmer's land you know just because the farmer discovered it doesn't mean it was necessarily on his land so i would i would be curious because i could just imagine like well, wait a second this right. is on my property
0: and does that hold any weight when they're armed to the teeth or something Right. probably not right <laughs> they knew this site was being looted because stuff kept Appearing on the black market, but they couldn't find it. They even did like a helicopter survey, couldn't figure it out until finally one of the collectors got a guilty conscience, which is suspect, and told them where it was. Um, but they noted that his conscious only kicked in after everything was taken out of there. Yeah. So there was nothing left. Yeah. Um, no chance of any other anything else to learn from this.
1: But like they, you know, they looked at what they could, and it's contemporaneous with Sapan. Mm -hmm. And some of the artifacts have possibly been confused or even commingled with Zipan artifacts. So that brings up a whole nother issue, right? Is sometimes you might be getting something that you think is from one site and it's from another site. Even if it's not a fake, it's not from the site you think it is. Say you try to donate it to a museum afterwards. And we, we get this a lot where people are like, oh, I found this. I want to donate it to a museum. And we're like, well, no museum worth its weight is going to want your collection because there's no provenance for it. So, yeah, so many issues.
0: Yep. So they returned once more in 1990 for one more excavation before refilling it. Um, and this time they focused on trying to salvage what they could from the looted portions. And they realized that they had gotten, in my words, stupid lucky. Yeah. Because when Ernil shoved the shovel up into the roof, he was right below the body of the Lord. And that's why he had the shower of gold stuff on him. Mm -hmm. If it had been anywhere else, it wouldn't have been near a clear indication that they'd found something like that.
1: Towards the end, he talks about, and I'm going to possibly butcher this, but the show at the Grand Palas Mm. Palas in Paris. (laughs) I do not speak French. That was in 1988. And this is where the French got their first look at that Hoteliers collection. And he readily admitted he got it from grave robbers, right? Yep. And he was able to get around the whole looting situation by declaring it with the Peruvian government. And if part of that, you agree not to ever export the artifacts. But this exhibit was in France. So there's two issues in my head, right? First of all, he exported the artifacts for an exhibit, which he wasn't supposed to do. And then there's also the government, and the, or the museum at least, in Paris, who is like, we know these are looted, but we're going to display them anyways. Right. So there's two very big issues. But since he registered the artifacts, he shouldn't have taken them out, but he supposedly got a temporary export permit, which was granted on the condition that he return the artifacts back to Peru, which he did, but
0: it shouldn't have been granted.
1: It shouldn't have been granted in the first place. I mean, it
0: it totally. And it was just showed how weak the law was. Yeah. This
1: law has absolutely no
0: teeth. Right. Or no one willing to back it.
1: Yeah. So and also like what about the laws in Paris? You know, so there should be laws on both end. Right. You can't export looted artifacts. And then on the other end, you can't exhibit looted artifacts. Right. This example right here goes to show how this is really an international issue and we really need to kind of come together and cooperate to make this stop but i guess the peruvians were very very mad about this and some of them
0: were yeah yeah
1: and the president said that he didn't know that that it was allowed and he considered asking the french authorities to seize the whole collection but in the end he did nothing and essentially it just increase the invincibility of this italian hotelier
0: and weaken the law and weaken the law even further
1: yeah so (sighs) it's such a complex problem because nobody's willing to do anything and the laws that do exist just aren't enforceable or nobody's willing to enforce them there's so many issues yes but and You and I have talked a little bit and alluded to this, like, I know we're wrapping up the chapter, but also where is the archaeologist's responsibility, right? Because we talk about how this is an issue of exploitation and then archaeologists like Alva come in and they excavate the site. And you had touched on the fact that it was great. He used Peruvian crew members, would have been better if he was able to use the villagers. Obviously, for reasons that were probably at least somewhat out of his control, he couldn't. But where is the archaeologist's responsibility, right? We study the past, but we're studying it in an environment where people currently live, currently are trying to exist and maintain their lives. And where do kind of the collision of the past and the present and what is our roles and responsibilities in that? Because he's quoted, I think, at the end of chapter two saying, you know, He empathizes with the people of Sapan, but running water and paved streets aren't his issues. Looters are. And I get that he's saying that, but also...
0: It is. It is your concern. It is. And maybe what you can do about it is limited. Right. But that's kind of what I was trying to get at, I think, is I feel like there's a missed opportunity here on many levels. Mm -hmm. And our responsibility... Is to remember that yes, we're focused on the past, but we are doing these things in the present. Right. And what we are doing has an effect on people yep. and can benefit people. Like there are ways, and he, he would have probably had to fight with proving government to get some of this, maybe. But he could have used his position potentially to do that. Yeah. To get them a road, to get some facilities to host tourists, to start bringing in money and bring in jobs to the community. Again, there's only so much that you can do, but I feel like. And it's not entirely his responsibility. It most definitely
1: is not. And I don't know enough about the politics in Peru. But from what I've read in this book thus far, there's possibly a lot of corruption, a lot of apathy. But I don't know that for sure. There was possibly something that could be done.
0: And to say that it's not my responsibility, oh, well, Mm -hmm. is that's where I kind of started to have a little bit of problem. And like I said, this is not unique to a personal attack on this archaeologist. Um this is a problem in their field I've seen it time and time and time again. Yeah. Um, even on on less urgent scales like in the US I know there's been cases where archaeologists come in we're going to study this thing that is a local legend here and and everyone's like great this is so cool archaeologists here and they find out the legend is entirely myth and it all blows up in their face because they fail to realize the impact of what they're having is doing is having on the community. Yeah. You know there's probably no death threats in this case but It just kind of highlights that, you know, this is, I don't know, this is real, this is important, and it really bothers me that we keep missing this point.
1: No, because archaeology has the potential to really help people. I mean, we've talked, I think, in previous episodes about the archaeology of the homeless and how we can use that to potentially, like, understand their camps, understand their needs, understand what is lacking within their population and we are able to possibly help rectify that situation. so there's a lot of potential and that's just one example, but there's a lot of potential in a lot of different communities for archaeology to be able to provide jobs, to provide resources and you know to provide basic necessities like in this case you could have if it was set up in such a way that where it could become a tourist attraction, and there would be the need for paved roads. There would be the need for running water. There would be the need for people to stay at those hotels that currently the hotel employees are telling people, you can't stay here, it's not safe. Right. So it has the potential to do a lot of good. And I know in this situation, Alva was brought in, maybe not at the right time to try and do that, but maybe as time goes on...
0: And they they might still hate you. Yeah. But you still have, I feel, as a person and with your position, you still have some responsibility towards them.
1: Yeah. So I commend him for using Peruvian crew members. And I know it may not have been possible initially at the very beginning, but as time went on, I feel like he should. And maybe he has. I don't know. Maybe we'll read about it more in the future when we're only in chapter three. Yeah. But over time, hopefully he can build a rapport with the community and... Maybe at the end of this book, it turns out wonderfully and everybody's happy.
0: (laughs) I'm I'm not too optimistic right now.
1: (laughs) I think it's just important for archaeologists to understand that. And we've heard it. We're like, you know, archaeologists kind of joke. There's a joke in archaeology where it's like, I didn't get into archaeology to study the living or to deal with the living. And
0: the dead don't talk back.
1: Yeah, that's great and all. But guess what? You are working within modern society, and you are impacting people. So you're
0: studying living cultures.
1: and that's, I mean, that's where public archaeology comes in, right? That's where public outreach and things like that comes in, and that's why it's so important because...
0: And so you see we're kind of harping on this maybe a bit more than normal. And I think one of the reasons this is hitting us so hard is because we often talk about how, you know, archaeology has done these things, but we're better... This, I think, is one that we still don't do very well. Oh, agreed. This is something that's still it's it's a very hot topic in archaeology today that we need to be doing better at this stuff. Yeah, that's why we're kind of getting worked up about this. And there's
1: archaeologists out there that don't see the value in it. Yes, that's an issue as well that we have within our own discipline that really needs to be addressed. I
0: think this is changing, but if it is, it's very very early stages. Yeah. So we're hopeful for the future, but. We're still quite upset about this today,
1: but maybe Oliva is going to turn things around.
0: I hope that, and by the end of this some book, happy there
1: will be paved roads and running water and jobs.
0: Uh, spoiler alert: I have seen photos of the site, and it does look, look like there's facilities hey. there now. So we'll see. Still didn't find anything of the town, so that may not be a good sign. But the site itself seems to have some facilities. Okay, that wraps us up. We got to stop ourselves before we get off on another tangent.
1: Yeah, we can rant for days. We
0: could go on about that. I think we'll stop, though. Next time. (laughs) What do you think of the book so far, Barbara?
1: I really like it. Um, It's a lot. There were quite a few moments as I was reading this where my heart just broke. Mm -hmm. I hate hearing about human remains and burials being desecrated. It's something I feel really strongly about. That should most definitely not happen. And... Just, I was shocked at the efficiency of the illicit artifact trade. It, it makes it seem overwhelming and it makes me a little, well, not a little, it makes me very concerned about how we are ever going to get a hold on this. Yeah. Because at this rate and with, the only way I see it happening is like I talked about just a little bit ago when I was talking about that exhibition in Paris. Our governments need to take this seriously and they need to work together to stop the international trade of these objects without that i don't know that there's much that can be done
0: yeah and just to kind of reiterate too i feel for the victims of this you know the people the burials of the people but also the people of sapan and all the way up to the collectors at least i don't know think i feel any sympathy for them or the the buyers at least but for the the poor people trying to get an opportunity and for the poor people who are buried in these sites and you know are deserving of respect as well yeah it was kind of heartbreaking
1: to live in a community where your only opportunity is to do something illegal in order to make a living that's not right
0: no but i as far as the book goes it is a not a happy story so far it is a little sad to read but i really do want to commend this author this is possibly one of the most engaging books we've read so far as yeah. far as the writing style and the the way he presents this information. This is really exceptionally well-written, I think.
1: Yeah. And I think it's an important story to tell. It's not a happy story, mm-hmm. but it's one right. that I think everybody needs to be aware of because in addition to getting our governments to take this seriously, well, guess how that happens? It's yeah. by people wanting our governments to take it seriously. And this gets the word out about what is happening.
0: And we're looking at Peru, but remember, too, this is a worldwide phenomenon. And this is not something that we don't see in the U.S. even, too. Um, There's a lot of looting that goes on in the U.S. of sites. A lot of that is tied with this illicit trade, as well as drug issues worldwide, at least. It's often tied with terrorism. And so people who are buying these artifacts are funding those things as well. Just not to leave it on a so heavy a note, (laughs) Uh, I do, again, just want to reiterate, this is a lot of fun. You can tell we're getting kind of worked up and passionate about this. Hope you've enjoyed it too. But until then, we'll continue on with the next three chapters. Is that right, Barbara?
1: I think we were going to do the next four chapters and finish up part one. So it would be four through seven.
0: Okay. So we're going to finish up part one with chapters four through seven, like Barbara said. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes because... I'm at least glad that this isn't where it's stopping right now.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a happy end, Tristan. Or at
0: least there's some hope for a happy end, <laughs> even if it doesn't happen in this book, you know?
1: Yeah. At least maybe it'll give us some concrete ways we can
0: address the issue. Mm-hmm. As a society or as individuals even. Yes. Until next time, we'll see you then. And I'm looking forward to it.
1: Happy reading.
0: Archaeology Books for Fun is brought to you by the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a program of the University of West Florida. You can find out more about archaeology and about Fpan at fpan.us. We appreciate any feedback, so if you're listening to us as a podcast, please leave us a review, and if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.